Welcome to the Mad Dad Movie Review, a podcast full of first-time movie reviews starring Mads and her dad. Hi, Mads. And I'm her dad, and this is Mad Dad Movie Review. How goes it, kids and heroes, and welcome to an all-new edition of the Mad Dad Movie Review, where today it's going to be another solo edition, but I'm doing a movie that I really, really love and is near and dear to my heart. You know how they always say, one for them, one for us? Well, this is one for me. I'm talking about Beverly Hills Cop. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop. On vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take it anymore. I... For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. <laughs> I've never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while because I ordered some pizza? We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. May I help you? Yeah. I'm looking for Victor Maitland. I have nothing to say to you. How you doing? You guys don't know nothing about nothing, do you? You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks because my drink club sold out. Throw up. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. Stays nice in my apartment. Mattress bitch, you are the pride of your department in Detroit. It seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. I don't know what y'all think I am, taking some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker! Crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> All right, before we get into the episode, I want to let everyone know that they can check out previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, Instagram.com at Mad Dad Movie Review. YouTube.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, and finally Twitter.com at Mad Dad Movie Pod. And of course, you can always email any questions, comments, or requests to Mad Dad Movie Review at gmail.com. All right. <clears throat> Two shout outs. All right, so I just want to give a special shout out to my boy Fell, who joined me on the episode for Go earlier this week. Um, the reception to that episode has been pretty overwhelming so far, uh, pretty good, really positive. Um, and like I told you, dude, you definitely have what I consider a radio voice. So can't wait to have you back on the show in a couple of weeks talking about the fifth element. So shout out to my boy Fell. I know you're listening. All right, so my first time seeing this film, um, I mean, I saw it for the very first time. I, I can't pinpoint when it was exactly. I was younger, um, but I can tell you that it was about 20 years ago, um, back when DVDs were a thing, Paramount put out the trilogy for the first time on DVD, and I was working at Blockbuster, and I remember picking them up and watching 
Now, I was familiar with the second and third ones because they seemed to be on TV a lot more than the first one was back in the day. But <clears throat> I connected right away with the first one because it was just a movie that I forgot how funny it was. And even watching this again last night in preparation for this episode, you know, it's consistently funny throughout. And it's just, I really, I miss that Eddie Murphy humor, you know, it, it, um, so yeah, when this finally got released on DVD for the first time is when I really got into the movie and started really watching it consistently, like, you know, once, twice a year or so, because I, I have seen this movie countless times over the years. It's one of my favorites. It's why I'm really excited to talk about it today. Um, so yeah. Let's get to the nitty-gritty. So, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. All right, so Beverly Hills Cop was released on December 5th, 1984 from Paramount Pictures, opening up in first place against 2010, City Heat, The Terminator, Missing in Action, and Night of the Comet. Opening weekend box office was $15.2 million, going on to gross $316.4 million on a $13 million budget. It was directed by Martin Brest, produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, <laughs> we know that name, written for the screen by Danielle Petrie Jr., edited by Arthur Coburn and Billy Weber, music by Harold Faltermeyer, and cinematography by Bruce Surtees, starring Eddie Murphy as Axel Foley, Judge Reinhold as Detective Billy Rosewood, John Ashton as Sergeant John Taggart, Lisa Eilbacher as Jenny Summers, Stephen Burkoff as Victor Maitland, Ronnie Cox as Lieutenant Andrew Bogomel, Jonathan Banks as Zach, James Russo as Mickey Tandino, Paul Reiser as Jeffrey, Gilbert R. Hill as Inspector Douglas Todd, Bronson Pinchot as Serge, and Damon Wayans as Banana Man. <clears throat> Alright guys, let's go over to the Critics Corner and see what they had to say about the movie. <laughs> Alright, so Beverly Hills Cop has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 82% from 50 reviews. It has a meta score of 66 from 11 reviews and a letterbox average score of 3.6 out of 5. The general consensus reads, The buddy cop movie continues its evolution, unibated with this Eddie Murphy vehicle that's fast, furious, and funny. Roger Ebert gave the movie two and a half out of four stars, saying Eddie Murphy looks like the latest victim of the star magic syndrome in which it is assumed that a movie will be a hit simply because it stars an enormously talented person. Janet Maslin says Beverly Hills Cop finds Eddie Murphy doing what he does best, playing the shrewdest, hippest, fastest talking underdog in a rich man's world. Murphy knows exactly what he's doing and he wins at every turn. Time Magazine said Eddie Murphy exuded the kind of cheeky, cocky charm that has been missing from the screen since Cagney was a pup, snarling his way out of the ghetto. It's worth mentioning that Axel Foley was ranked number 78 on Empire's list of the 100 greatest movie characters of all time. Entertainment Weekly Magazine ranked Beverly Hills Cop as the third best comedy of the last 25 years. British novelist and poet Kingsley Amos considered the film a flawless masterpiece. John Simon of National Review called it a truly contemptible film. In 2003, the film was picked by New York Times as one of the thousand best movies ever made. And now that we know why critics love the movie so much, why do I love this film? Well... Because Axel Foley is one of my all-time favorite characters. I love this film because of Foley's quick get the fuck out of here reaction to Serge. No, I cannot. It's serious. I love this film because of the banana and the tailpipe. I love it because of Faltermeyer's iconic score and the film's memorable soundtrack. I love it because of the father-son-esque chemistry between Foley and Todd. I love it because... I can watch it every single day and never get sick of the thing. I love it because it features a very young Mike Ehrmantraut. I love it because of the legit fear James Russo's Mikey expresses before being executed. 
I love it because it's my all-time favorite Eddie Murphy movie. I love it because, to me, it's as perfect as it can be for a mid-80s action comedy flick. I love it because of the way it still makes me genuinely laugh after 37 years and countless rewatches. I love it because of Taggart's awkward yet sudden gut punch. I love it because it spawned a sequel that's just as good as the original. Finally, I love this film because of Herpes Simplex Tien. Alright guys, so it all started when, in 1977, Paramount executive Don Simpson came up with a movie idea about a cop from East LA who transferred to Beverly Hills. Screenwriter Danilo Bach was called in to write the screenplay. Bach pitched his idea to Simpson and Paramount in 1981 under the name Beverly Drive about a cop from Pittsburgh named Ellie Axel. However, his script was a straight action film and Bach was forced to make changes to the script, but after a few attempts, the project went stale. With the success of Flashdance, Simpson saw the Beverly Hills film as his next big project. Daniel Petrie Jr. was brought in to rewrite the script and Paramount loved Petrie's humorous approach to the project with the lead character now called Axel Ellie from Detroit. Producer Jerry Bruckheimer claimed that the role of Axel Foley was first offered to Mickey Rourke, who signed a $400,000 holding contract to do the film. When revisions and other preparations took longer than expected, Rourke left the project to do another movie. Sylvester Stallone was originally considered for the part of Foley. Stallone gave the script a dramatic rewrite and made it into a straight action film. In one of the previous drafts written for Stallone, the character Billy Rosewood was called Siddons and was killed off halfway through the script during one of the action scenes. Stallone had renamed the lead character to Axel Cobretti, with the character of Michael Tandino being his brother and Jenny Summers playing his love interest. Stallone has said that his script for Beverly Hills Cop would have looked like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan on the beaches of Normandy. Believe it or not, the finale was me in a stolen Lamborghini playing chicken with an oncoming freight train being driven by the ultra-slimy bad guy. However, <laughs> what the hell? Okay, however, Stallone's ideas were deemed too expensive for Paramount to produce, and Stallone ultimately dropped out two weeks before filming was to start. Two days later, the film's producers, Simpson and Bruckheimer, convinced Eddie Murphy to replace Stallone in the film, prompting more rewrites. Besides Stallone and Rourke, other actors who were considered for the role of Axel Foley included Richard Pryor, yeah right, Al Pacino, and James Caan. Okay, alright, so... Should we dive into this right now? Alright. So the film begins with an opening credits montage showing various shots of Detroit suburbs set the Glenn phrase that heat is on. As soon as the credits are over, we're introduced to Eddie Murphy's detective Axel Foley, who is in the back of a double trailer on an unauthorized sting-up in an alleyway, selling cartons of illegal cigarettes when two uninformed officers suddenly pull up, and we get this. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cousin, my man, don't dash yet. Um, this look like two grand to me. This look like five thousand dollars. Give me, let me see. The deal is for five thousand. That's about two thousand that you, you know count what? yourself. You know what? This pisses me off. I told my people it was supposed to be five grand here, and look at this shit. They stiffed us. No, they stiffed you, because I want my money, man. Son of a bitch, you know, you can't count anybody today. But look, I'll tell you what, let's not fucking hassle about it now. Take the two fucking grand, and on the next score. I promise I'll make it up to you. Hey, look, man, don't jerk me off, all right, man? Jerk somebody else off. This is bullshit. I need, I need $5,000, not $2,000 thing, man. Don't do this to me. Look, don't be unreasonable. You're not dealing with Johnny Bananas. Come on. Yeah. No, I, 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 I know I ain't dealing with Johnny Bananas, but can I have my money? Can you, no, look, can I say it slow for you? Look, I need $5,000. Read my lips. $5,000 is what I need. This is bullshit. Here, I can't look, do nothing with that. You know, you want to be a fucking asshole, you can take the whole load and smoke them yourself in the park. I, I don't got, smoke I like a strike. I, I smoke to. king size cat. I, can't, I can't make a price ah! in my Fuck this. Nice doing business with you, kid. Hey, buddy, what you doing here? Oh, officer, you know what just happened a few minutes ago? You ain't gonna believe this shit. Check this out. The truck, it just stopped, man. It just stopped. You got some jumper cables, you give me a jump. Hey, uh, don't I know you from someplace? Nah, man, that ain't me. I'm from Buffalo. Both of you guys break out some ID. Let's get the fuck out of here! Causing the guy Axel's dealing with to run away and the driver to take off with Foley still in the back of the truck, which results in a destructive high-speed chase through Detroit that ends with the truck crashing into a sea of cars, followed by the driver getting away on foot, 
never to be seen again. When the cops surround the back and aim their guns at Foley, they realize it's him and they put their guns away. Axel then gets back to the police station where he's warned by Jeffrey, who's played by a young Paul Reiser, that his boss, Inspector Todd, played by a real-life police inspector, Gilbert R. Hill, is looking for Foley, and he's pretty pissed about what all happened in the previous scene. He then follows Foley into the locker room where Foley's trying to get his things and go home before Todd finds him. Suddenly, Todd is heard yelling for Foley. Is that fucking Foley in here? All right, there's Todd. It's showtime, okay? Hey, boss, I know what you're going to say, but... You I'm... mind telling me where the fuck you come off going undercover without authorization from me? What the fuck is this all about? You want to play some fucking bullshit cowboy cop? Go do it in somebody else's precinct. Don't you want to hear my side of the story? What's your fucking side of the story? Let's hear your side of the story. Hey, Axel, I'm not taking any more of this shit from you. Now, how much this little stunt of yours going to cost this city? I don't think cost is the issue here, sir. I think the issue should be my blatant disregard for proper procedure. You damn right, wise ass! The mayor called the chief, the chief called the deputy chief, the deputy chief just chewed my ass out. You see, I don't have any bit of it left, don't you? When the fuck did you get a truckload of cigarettes from anyway? From the Dearborn hijack. From the Dearborn hijack? That fucking bus went down last week. That truck is supposed to be in the damn pound. I'm trying to tell you. Jeffrey, this is none of your fucking business. This is not my locker. Listen, Axel. No more of these setups, you understand? You're a good cop. And you got great potential, but you don't know every fucking thing. And I'm tired of taking the heat for your ass. One more time, you're out on the street. Do you understand me? Boss, let me tell you. Do you understand me? Yeah, I understand. Boss. The chief ain't true at all out. You still got a little ass there. Don't fuck with me, Axel. Not now. Go on. Go home. Later that night, Axel pulls up to his apartment, and when he goes to enter, he notices the front door open, so he goes inside with his gun in arm. When he jumps into the kitchen, his childhood friend Mikey is sitting at the table having himself a sandwich. Now, the thing that sticks out to me in this part is not the fact that Homeboy's just broken into his friend's house from all these years and it's just helping himself to a sandwich. No, it ain't that. It's the goddamn refrigerator door sitting wide open behind him, just chilling wide open while he's sitting at the table having at it. It just, it always just, I don't know, it, it's, it's always bothered me. Uh, the two play some catch-up while Mikey reveals a paper bag filled with untraceable bear bonds that he took and skipped town with. Axel says he wants to know part of this, wants to know nothing about it, and then the two go to a local bar to catch up and drink some more. Uh... At the bar, Mikey reveals that he went to California to get some sun, and then he got a job in Beverly Hills after their childhood friend Jenny Summers got it for him, working security at the art gallery where she works. Axel says he hasn't seen her in years and asks how she's doing, to which Mikey says she's doing pretty good. Mikey then says he has a great idea and suggests that they go out and steal a car when Axel reminds him that he's a cop and can't be doing that shit anymore. Mikey then drunkenly reminds him of the time that they stole a Cadillac and that he drove it down the and when he drove it down the expressway like a maniac, Axel asks why he never ratted them out after they were caught, to which Mikey tells him it's because he loves him. When the two get back to Axel's apartment, Axel is suddenly knocked out from behind, and Mikey's confronted by Zach, played by the always great Jonathan Banks, and his partner, who's actually, I don't know the guy's name, but his partner, I noticed right off the bat, is Michael Ironside's henchman, his number two from Total Recall, the guy with the blonde hair and glasses. Yeah, that's him, uh, minus the glasses. Um, it confronts him about the bonds that he took. Mikey breaks into tears and tells Zach that he didn't think anyone would notice because there were so many of them. Knowing what's about to happen, he begs Zach for his life, and Zach seemingly begins to give in by telling him never to show his face in Beverly Hills again, when suddenly he knocks Mikey down and executes him with two bullets to the back of the head. Axel's outside of his apartment with ice on his head. Meanwhile, the entire building's a crime scene with cops all around the place. Inspector Todd tells Axel to go to the hospital to get his head checked, and it's not a request. Axel confronts Todd about the guy he's assigned to the case. When Todd cuts him off, warns him not to do anything funny, not to do a damn thing. And Axel reminds him that it was his friend that was murdered. When Todd stops him to tell him that it was a hoodlum friend who was taken out by a professional hit outside of a cop's apartment. And that the entire thing stinks to high heaven. 
Axel tells him he's got vacation time coming up and wants to take it now, which raises Todd's eye, but he tells him he's on vacation after he leaves the hospital and that if he sticks his nose in the case, that it'll be the longest vacation he's ever heard of. And we cut to Axel now driving through sunny Beverly Hills, California, accompanied by various shots of the glamorous city as he's seeing the place for his first time. He eventually parks out front of the Beverly Palms Hotel and has a very unique way of checking in. Hi. I'm nervous, some people, huh? <laughs> May I help you? Yes, you have a reservation for an Axel Foley? Well, let's see. I'm sorry, I don't see anything under that name. Uh, check. Rolling Stone Magazine's Axel Foley. That's what it is. <laughs> no, no Rolling Stone, no Axel Foley. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, that's all right. You guys probably just made some kind of mistake with reservations. Why don't you just give me another room now, go up and go to sleep? I'm sorry, sir, but there are no rooms available. Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But I'm not some hot shot from out of town. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson that's going to be picked up by every major magazine in the country. I was going to call the article, Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world, but now I think I might as well just call it, Michael Jackson can sit on top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palm Hotel because there's no allowed in there. Excuse me, sir. It seems that we do have a, a last-minute cancellation. Uh, there is a room available. It's a suite, but uh, I'll only charge you the single room rate. Thank you. I'm sorry I got upset. It's probably from jet lag or something. I'm very tired. I understand, What's sir. What's the rate, anyway? Uh, that'll be $235 a night, sir. Axel takes a walk down the street to the Hollis Benson Gallery, where Mikey worked and his friend Jenny is still employed. When he arrives, we're introduced to one of the film's highlights, Bronson Pinchot's Surge. I'm fine. My name is Serge, and how can I help you? Um, yeah, I'm looking for Miss Jenny Summers. It's very busy today. Maybe you give me your name? My name's Axel Foley. And uh, what is pertaining? I didn't understand what you said. Pertaining, what it's meaning, regarding. Oh, what's it regarding? I'm an old acquaintance of hers. Donay? One moment. Don't run and tell me, Summers, that uh, Mr. Ahmed Foley is here to no, see Axel Foley. Axel. Ahmed, Ahwell, Axel. Foley is here to see her. These are all the queens. Donnie, this is covered this up. It's I'm like sorry. the breast of a dog to scrub for the customer. It's not sexy, it's animal. No, it's not sexy at all. May I offer you something to drink? A wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso? No, I'm fine, thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. Try it. No, I'm, I'm fine. I see you look at this piece. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out of here! No, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important piece. Have you ever sold one of these? Sell it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck no, out of here! I'm serious. I said it myself. <laughs> Axel Foley, what on earth are you doing here? How you doing? I'm fine. Hold a second. I'll be right down. Great. Excuse me, Serge. Axel and Jenny catch up a little bit when he eventually reveals that Mikey was murdered in Detroit. Jenny's shocked by the news and Axel says that he mentioned Jenny getting him a job. She tells him Mikey was working for Victor Maitland in the gallery's warehouse before excusing herself. Axel tells her he'll call her later and they'll talk. He's then seen approaching Victor's secretary with a bouquet of flowers for Victor, insisting he'll deliver them himself because flowering's his life. He goes upstairs and enters Victor's office, who immediately asks who he is and who let him in, Victor being played by the veteran character actor Stephen Burkoff. He tells him he let himself in and says that he has some questions about Mikey. It's also worth mentioning Zach's in Victor's office too. He explains Mikey was his best friend and someone killed him when he came to visit. Victor patronizes Axel and asks how it happened and that Detroit's a very violent city. Victor continues to act patronizing when Axel asks what Mikey did exactly working for him. Victor then tells him Axel that it sounds like a job for Detroit police when he hits a button and a group of five to six men in suits suddenly appear and they carry Axel out. Instead of going through the front door, they toss him through the window as the police show up. Axel asks the cops if they saw what just happened to him, but they respond by asking him to go to the side of the car and put his hands on the hood. Did you see that shit? 
I can describe all of them. Please move to the side of the car and put your hands on the hood. Why? What's what you got? You heard what he said, sir. Do it right now, please. What kind of shit is this, man? Hold up. Wait a second. You guys are arresting me for getting thrown out of a fucking window? I got thrown out of a window, man. Gun partner. Sir, you are under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to have an attorney present during questioning. Yeah, I understand. I understand the rights. I know this is bullshit, though, man. I got thrown out of a fucking window. Please get in the car, sir. Yeah, but tell me, sir, what's the charge? Possession of a concealed weapon and disturbing the peace. Disturbing the peace? I got thrown out of a window! What's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car, huh? Jaywalking? So now we're at the Beverly Hills Police Station. Axel's amazed at the look and appearance of the police. Eventually, he's let out of his jail cell and escorted to Lieutenant Bogomil's office where he's introduced to Billy Rosewood and John Taggart, played by the awesome Judge Reinhold and John Ashton. Taggart asks why he didn't identify himself when Axel jumps on him about being thrown through the window. The two get into it a little bit. Taggart ends up punching Axel in the stomach out of, the, out of thin air. As soon as he does that, Bogomil played by the always incredible Ronnie Cox, calls Taggart over to speak with him. When Taggart returns to Foley, he apologizes for striking him, and Bogomil asks Foley if he wants to press charges for assault, to which Axel explains that where he's from, cops don't file charges against other cops. Bogomil begins interrogating Axel about the incident, but Axel's giving him innocent answers and plays dumb when they don't buy his story. He tells Foley he just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit, who tells him that Axel's an outstanding young detective, but might not be welcomed back to Detroit. He asks Foley again what he's doing in Beverly Hills, and he reiterates that he's on vacation. He went to use the bathroom, and he was thrown out the window by six men. Bogomil then tells Axel that he has a message from Todd. If you're out there investigating the Tandino murder, then don't even bother coming back. He says if he's informed that he is working on the case... Then he'll have him brought up on charges and fired. When asked the final time what he's doing there, Axel once again says he's on vacation. Bogomil has Billy then take Axel to the courthouse to make bail arrangements. Later on that evening, Jenny is seen bailing Foley out and she tells him that if it wasn't for Victor, she'd be still waiting tables. She then gives Axel crap for going around town looking the way he does. On the car ride, she asks Axel what he wants with Victor and that he's a genuinely good person. Axel notices that they're being followed by Rosewood and Taggart. When they pull up at the hotel, he's staying. Up in his room, Axel orders room service for Rosewood and Taggart outside, who are parked alongside the street. When Jenny asks Axel how long he'll be in, in town for, he tells her until he finds out who killed Mikey. He also tells her he plans on going to the warehouse where Mikey guarded. Outside, we see one of the hotel workers bringing out all the food Axel ordered to Rosewood and Taggart. While this is happening, Axel grabs a couple of bananas from Damon Wayans and sneaks around the car to stuff the bananas in the tailpipe. Jenny and Axel drive off in her convertible, and when Rosewood and Taggart go to follow, their car stalls out and stops driving on them. At the warehouse, Axel finds coffee grounds, which is used to smuggle drugs so that canines don't pick up on the scent. The two then secretly spot two guys who were taking a crate away in a van. Axel and Jenny then follow the two in her car. Back at the station, we got Billy and Taggart explaining to Bogomil what happened to them with the food service and banana in the tailpipe. He tells the two to go back to the hotel to wait for Axel and that if they lose him again, to not worry about coming back. And this is when we see the van that Axel and Jenny are following pulls up to the bonded warehouse shipping dock. Axel gets out of Jenny's car and tells her to go home and get some sleep. She eventually does this before Foley spotted sneaking into the warehouse and climbing over a fence. Walking around the warehouse, he encounters one of the security guards and pretends to be head of customs services, one of many characters in this film, asking if everything's went through customs properly, to which he's told no because everything there is held in the bonded area. Can I help you? Are you the supervisor here? Yes, who are you? I'm Inspector Raffer, the United States Customs Service. Has all this stuff passed through customs already? No, this is the bonded area. Well, then tell me something. Ask a question for me. How can a black man, dressed like me, just march into your warehouse, walk into the bonded area, and start poking around without anyone asking me any questions whatsoever? Well, I don't know. Well, thank you. That's the, that's the answer I was looking for. Why don't you guys just give me your ID numbers, because somebody's going to lose their job behind this. This guy gave me a match, for Christ's sake. Ooh. 
you gave him a match? Listen, listen to me. I do security checks all over the nation. And with the exception of Cleveland, this place has the worst security in the nation. Now, I suggest you guys call your wives, because we're going to be here all night. We're going to check the background of each and every crate in this section, starting with this one right here. Axel eventually returns to the hotel, where he jumps into the back of Rosewood and Tiger's car to talk to them and have a little more fun. Tiger's pretty upset that they've been docked two days pay for everything, but Billy's overly happy and thankful for the food that Axel ordered for them. He tells him he knows how stakeouts can be, so he sent food down from the heart, which Tiger doesn't buy at all. Axel then tries to make up with them and be friends, saying he's going to a club and wants to buy them a drink. So we go to that club. It turns out to be a strip club that Axel takes them to. He orders a drink, and the other two order club sodas since they're still on duty. Axel shows Taggart the coffee grounds he found at the warehouse before noticing two suspect-looking guys entering the club with trench coats on them. When they get in, the two separate. He points the guys out to Taggart and asks if he thinks it's too hot for them to be wearing coats in the middle of June. Being serious now, Taggart approaches one of the men as Axel approaches the other, pretending to be an old drunk friend who was loud and obnoxious. The guy freaks out a little and the two pull out their shotguns to hold the place up. Axel continues to play the drunk friend as he gets closer to the guy and unarms him while Taggart pulls the gun on the other to arrest the man and everyone applauses. Back at the station, Bogomil is questioning what Rosewood and Taggart were doing at the strip club while on duty when Foley intervenes and tells them that they were outside watching Foley when they spotted two suspicious looking guys entering so they decided to enter themselves and arrest the perps. He says they foiled the crime while he was inside having fun. He then proceeds to call them both super cops who deserve to have capes. Bogomil asks what really happened when Taggart explains the truth. Taggart, would you mind explaining to me what you and Rosewood were doing in a strip bar out of our jurisdiction when you were still on duty? Sir, before you chastise these two officers, I think it's something you should know. The only reason that they were at a strip bar was because they were tailing me and I went to this place. Now, these two officers were sitting outside wondering what I was doing. I wasn't having a good time. I'm into things like that. Anyway, these guys waited outside. And the only reason that they came in was because they saw two suspicious-looking gentlemen with bulges in their jackets going into the place. Well, it turns out that these guys were going to commit a robbery, sir. These men watched them, waited for them to make their move, and then they foiled a crime. I did not know what was going on. I was watching the show having fun. I'm still freaked out by it. You must have a sixth sense. I don't know what you teach these fellows, but they're not just regular cops. Okay, they're super cops, and the only thing missing on these guys are capes. Is this what really happened? No, sir. Would someone like to tell me what really happened? <clears throat> well, Foley invited us to this bar, and we accepted. Uh, we ordered club sodas, sir. Right. And while we were there, fully observed the two suspects casing the establishment. And before we knew what was going on, he'd already disarmed one of them. Detective Foley deserves all the credit for the arrest, sir. Detective Foley, we appreciate your assistance. But in the future, if you want to practice law enforcement, I would prefer you did it in Detroit. I understand, sir. I'm sorry. But before I go, I just want you two to know something, all right? That the super cop story was working, okay? It was working, and you guys just messed it up, okay? I'm trying to figure you guys out, but I haven't yet. But it's cool. It's a fuck up, perfectly good lie, and it's all right. And after Foley leaves, Bogomil informs Taggart and Rosewood that they're no longer on the case, and then he puts detectives Foster and McCobb on the assignment. The following morning, Foley has the hotel waiter bring coffee and donuts out to the new detectives. Foley smacks the trunk of the car to signal that he's ready to leave, so they should follow along. Foley then drives off to Victor's mansion, where he's confronted by the new detectives right out front the gate. Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah, we're not gonna fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not gonna fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just fucking with you. That's funny to me, sorry. So you're gonna try to keep up with me? No problem. In this Victor Maitland's house? Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, I've seen enough. Y'all want something to drink? Beer or something? I got some stuff in the trunk. Excuse me. For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. Well, guys, I've been shooting the shit long enough. Time for me to take in some sights. Excuse me. He spots Victor leaving eventually, so he takes off after him, along with the two detectives who are following him as well. Shout out to that DeLorean car in the background when Axel drives off. Don't think I didn't notice. Axel pulls up behind Victor at the red light, with the detectives pulling up behind Axel. When the light turns green, Axel sticks around while Victor drives off. He waits patiently until the light turns red again and then punches it through the intersection before the crossing traffic of cars block the detectives from following. Axel catches up to Victor at the country club and has the valet driver park his beat-up car for him. He then heads inside and puts on another act to get in. May I help you? Yes. I'm looking for Victor Maitland. Uh, you realize that this is a members-only club? Mm-hmm, but I have to talk to Victor. It's very, very important. Are you sure it's Victor Maitland you want? Oh, yes, Victor Maitland, the gray-haired gentleman, very dark-skinned, Capricorn, Victor. Um, well, why don't you give me the message, and I'll take it to him. Okay, I guess I can do that. Um, tell Victor that Ramon, the fella he met about a week ago, tell him that um, Ramon went to the clinic today, and I found out that I have, um... Hyper simplex 10. And I think Victor should go check himself out with his physician to make sure everything is fine before things start falling off on the man. Ah, uh, perhaps you better tell him that. You know, I think that would be best. So do I. And we got Axel confronting Victor at the table. Zach gets up to confront him, but Axel ends up throwing him across the buffet table and humiliates him in the process. He sits down and tells Victor he knows he's in the criminal stuff and knows he had Mikey killed, and when he finds out, he's going to fuck him up. Victor then tells him to crawl back under his stone in Detroit before he gets squashed. The police then show up to arrest Axel, who tells Victor he'll catch him later before being escorted out in cuffs. Back at the station again, Bogomil confronts Axel and asks why he's bothering Victor Malin so much. He then proceeds to tell him, along with all the other cops around, Billy and Tiger included, about his friend and everything that happened that Victor's dealing with and everything going on. He tells him that he can't prove anything just yet, but when he does, they'll be the first to know. Bogomil says forget what he can prove and to talk to him. Axel tells him about the bonds he found in the warehouse that Mikey took that ended up getting him murdered. He also explains that Victor's paying someone to smuggle his shipments through customs, something we saw fully discover earlier when he was confronting everyone at the warehouse as the custom agent. All of this information gets the attention of Bogomil, who starts showing sympathy for Foley and would like to help. While Bogomil is getting his men to help Axel, the police chief enters and asks Bogomil if Axel's the guy who he's essentially been hearing about before pulling him into his office. We don't hear what's said, but when Bogomil goes to come out, he tells Rosewood to take Foley back to the hotel to watch him pack and then escort him to the city limits, where he'll be allowed to hand him back his gun. He tells Foley all charges have been dropped, but if he comes back into town, then all charges will return and he'll be fully prosecuted to the extent of the law. Billy's against this, but eventually has no choice but to escort Axel away. So then we see Victor and Zach come to Jenny's office, asking her about Axel and whatnot. He says that he stopped by the office the other day about Mikey's death and asked rather odd questions. He grills her for any information, but then asks where he's staying because he might have some information for him that could be helpful, but she says she has no idea. Victor then awkwardly kisses her on the cheek and leaves with Zach. Outside the station again, I never really noticed until now that 
there's a lot of action going on at this police station. A lot. So outside the station, Axel successfully convinces Billy to take him to the art galleries to wait for the shipments to arrive so they can nail Victor. Next scene is Billy and Axel walking into the gallery to meet with Jenny, who is with Serge. Axel asks Serge to get Billy an espresso, and Serge asks Billy if he wants a lemon twist. Yo, Serge, can you get my friend an um, espresso? You want to get a lemon twist? Uh, uh, yeah, sure, if it's no bother. No, don't be stupid. Jenny tells Axel that Victor was there asking her questions about him, saying that he was acting really weird. He tells her he wants her to let him into the warehouse again, but she says this time she wants to come too, since Mikey was her friend as well. Next thing we see is Jenny, Axel, and Billy all pull up to the warehouse. Axel tells Billy his job is to sit outside and do nothing while the other two go inside together. While in there, Axel notices they've, they've already been there when he opens one of the crates and pulls out packages of white cocaine from the coffee grinds. As soon as they make the discovery, Zach's henchmen appear and catch them. Outside, Billy notices Victor, Zach, and the other suits exit a car and walk into the warehouse together. They walk inside to Axel and Jenny being held at gunpoint. He notices that they are discovered. <clears throat> he notices what they've discovered, then tells Jenny how disappointed he is to see her there. When she begins to explain, he tells her to shut up, then has one of his men take her to the car. Something Billy also notices while sitting outside, but he can't do anything because of his job. Yeah, talk about a rough situation Billy's in right now. Back inside, Axel tells Victor he'll kill him if anything happens to Jenny. Zach then confronts Axel and tells him that he should have taken care of him in Detroit when he killed his little buddy, followed by a punch to the gut and a slap to the head. Victor then tells Axel goodbye and leaves with Zach, something else Billy witnesses before finally getting out to save Axel who's inside. Zach's henchman's punching Axel inside when Billy shows up. He shoots the henchman dead while Axel knocks everyone else out. The two flee the warehouse and take off in Rosewood's car, calling Taggart on the radio to tell him to go to the warehouse. The GPS of Billy's car shows them at Victor's mansion, so he takes off to join them while the other two detectives from earlier go to the warehouse to see what Axel found. Taggart then pulls up outside of Victor's place to Axel and Billy trying to pick the gates locked to get inside. At first, he's there to arrest Foley, but then changes his tune when Billy explains that Jenny's inside being held at gunpoint. Foley eventually breaks the lock and heads in, followed by Billy and Taggart, who gets a shotgun from his trunk first. And it's, I like how in the sequel, Billy does the same thing but grabs two shotguns like a badass. It's, it's more on that when we get to the second episode. I'm going to be covering parts two and three eventually. Don't worry. Victor's men get an alert from the yard then tell them that tells them that Axel's there. Back at the station, haha, Bogomil notices everyone gone and grows suspicious. Back at the house, Victor sees Axel on his video camera and calls more men to get him. This is when a big shootout around the mansion kicks off with Axel, Billy, and Taggart essentially taking on Victor and his men by themselves. Bogomil tracks down Billy's car on GPS throwing this time and discovers the location of everyone. Throwing the shootout, Axel successfully shoots Zack to death inside the mansion. As soon as he kills Zack, Victor appears and shoots Axel in the arm. While the rest of Victor's henchmen are seen trying to escape, but the police show up and they're unsuccessful in their attempts. Back inside, Victor has Jenny held at gunpoint in front of Axel when Bogomil appears. Jenny then elbows Victor and runs away as Axel and Bogomil shoot Victor dead together. Outside the mansion, everyone's being locked up as the chief returns to reprimand Bogomil for everything, including Axel's return. Bogomil then explains to the chief what happened, saying that Jenny discovered the drugs, then contacted Detective Foley as he's a close friend of hers, and that Foley had been cooperating to a joint Beverly Hills Detroit drug investigation. He then explains that Billy called for backup, and that's when everyone joined in and shot several suspects, including Mr. Maitland. The chief asks if he expects him to believe that story when he confirms that's the story he's reporting. When he asks Taggart what really happened, Taggart eventually says that everything that he said was the truth. The chief reminds Bogomil he wants that report on his desk first thing in the morning and then walks away and out of this movie. Axel asks Bogomil if he can do him a favor and calls Inspector Todd back in Detroit to help him out. While Axel's checking out from the hotel, Rosewood and Taggart show up to pay his tab on behalf of the Beverly Hills Police Department. Axel then asks for a couple $95 robes before giving one to Billy and one to Taggart as gifts. 
outside as Axel's getting in his car. He asks Taggart and Rosewood join him at the bar. When asked where to, Axel says, don't worry, you guys are going to love it. Trust me. Before we get a freeze frame, Axel Foley giving them a funny look as the screen fades to black and the credits start to roll. And that, my friends, is the end of Beverly Hills Cop. Alright, so all in all, that's Beverly Hills Cop. One of my favorites. Um, one of the things I love so much about this movie is that is how it it's able to keep your interest you know, the whole film, the whole duration. You know, it's more than the comedy. This is, you know, one of your typical 80s run-of-the-mill buddy cop movies. You would argue this is no different, but this is different. You know, the, the comedy is consistent. The characters are likable. Even the bad good guys, like your tag. When you first see Taggart, he's a douche. I mean, the first thing that the guy does is he punches his foley in the stomach, you know. But then his character goes on. He makes up for that incident, you know. Rosewood's just a sweetheart. He's as innocent as could be. I love his growth in the sequel and the third one. Like the whole evolution of the Billy Rosewood character throughout the whole series is a pretty funny one. Um, Ronnie Cox, love that dude. And it's funny, earlier I mentioned one of the henchmen being from Total Recall. And lo and behold, Ronnie Cox, lead villain, Total Recall. So shout out to that movie. Um, and like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can argue me all you want. I think for my money, this is Eddie Murphy's funniest, his best movie by far. Um, he's just a likable character. He's a funny guy in this movie. Um, you could tell a lot of his dialogue is ad-libbed and you can see that, you know, it's, it's genuine material that it's really legitimately funny stuff. You know, it's not like a carbon copied script, something that was written out to, you know, something that was written down for him to say out loud. None of that, you know, the, the majority of the material came from his mind as he was acting and it's good stuff. Um, I, I think that's what makes comedy what it is. The thing that makes a comedian to me is their ability to ad lib. If you can't ad lib, you can't be funny. That's just how it is to me. I'm sorry, you know. Um, who else? Uh, James Russo, great mobster Italian character actor from Donnie Brasco and stuff like that. Um, very young James Russo in this movie, actually. The girl who plays Jenny, I've only seen her in one other film. That was Deep Star Six. No. Leviathan, she's in that movie, Leviathan, that was the other creature feature from 89, Leviathan, yeah, she's in that movie too, uh, I believe she's Daniel Stern's love interest, Jonathan Banks, Mike Urban Trout from Breaking Bad, another young role for the man, um, he's just, I noticed that about Jonathan Banks, he's in a lot of 80s, he's a henchman in a lot of things, I've seen him as a henchman in a lot of stuff before Breaking Bad, you know, it's kind of a stereotype role, it's that's why I'm glad he eventually found that Breaking Bad, you know, role for him to get because it definitely changed his career around. Granted, I knew of Jonathan Banks prior to Breaking Bad, but Breaking Bad put him on a whole new level, you know. Um, and then Paul Reiser, and I didn't, I didn't realize Paul Reiser's only in one scene this whole movie. He's literally in one scene. I mean, his role is a little bit bigger in the sequel. I never realized until this rewatch that he's only in one scene and it's for like a few minutes. This is not my locker and that's it. He's gone. <laughs> um, and then last but not least, Bronson Pinchot. Serge is one of my favorite minor characters from any film. He's hilarious in this. He's hilarious in his reprisal in part three. Um, and less is more with him. He's only in two scenes, one scene in part three. But that's all you need. All you need is that little bit. And he makes a whole lot with it. So, great stuff. And then, you know, even Gilbert Hill as Inspector Todd. I love Todd. He's hilarious. All three films. Todd is one of my... That chemistry between Todd and Foley. It's like a father-son chemistry. You know what I mean? Um, and you can feel that. And 
It's one of my favorite relationships in these buddy cop films. <sighs> yeah, I, I just love it. And, and the music and, you know, the action and the comedy, it's just enough comedy. You know what I mean? And and that it's just enough blend of action and comedy. It's the perfect blend. So there's just so much that works about this movie. So much. So many reasons why I love it. Um, and it's not like I'm going to spend this episode convincing people to see it. Because I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this episode, even still, you've seen the damn movie. You like the movie. And yeah, so... Um, trivia. I do have some trivia. So the film stayed at number one for 13 consecutive weeks and returned to number one in its 15th weekend, making 14 non-consecutive weeks at number one, tying Tootsie for the film with the most weeks at number one. The film earned $234 million at the box office in the U.S. alone, being the highest grossing film released in 1984. So this movie was the highest grossed film in 1984. That is crazy. Eddie Murphy, John Ashton, and Judge Reinhold improvised most of their comic lines. Literally hundreds of takes were ruined by cast members, actors, or the director laughing during shooting. During the Super Cops monologue, Ashton is pinching his face hard and looking down in apparent frustration. He's actually laughing, guys. Reinhold had to put his hand in his pocket and pinch his thigh really hard to prevent himself from laughing as well. Um, during his tirade at the Beverly Palms Hotel, Axel pretends to be writing an article called Michael Jackson Sit on Top of the World for Rolling Stone magazine. In real life, Playboy ran an article called Eddie Murphy Sit on Top of the World. This is the first of seven Eddie Murphy movies in a row to open at number one. It was also the highest grossing R-rated film in the U.S. until Matrix Reloaded came out in 2003. It was the first film to be released in over 2,000 screens in the U.S. It holds the record for being the most rented title on the Betamax format. At the time of the film's home rental release in December 84, Betamax was still a significant competitor to VHS, although the industry would stop supplying new releases on Betamax by the end of the 80s. Stephen Burkhoff is said to loathe the film. He's the, he played the villain, Victor Maitland. Uh, apparently that guy hated this film. And then finally, one of the main reasons that the film ultimately began with scenes in Detroit is that the city is producer Jerry Bruckheimer's hometown. All right, let's wrap this up. So, my unbiased MVP for the film, come on guys, it's Eddie Murphy. This was Eddie's time, his era, and he could do no wrong. He's the reason this film is what it is today and why I'm here talking about it to you. Um, my Be Kind, Rewind, Most Rewatchable Moment is basically anything from Detroit. The whole opening sequence, like the whole the first 15 minutes, everything from Detroit in the opening 10, 15 minutes, um, you get that relationship on screen with Todd and Foley. Um you get everything setting up what the film's going to be. Like you see, you, you get that 10 minutes spent with Foley and Mikey before he's killed off. Um, the whole sting in the beginning of the movie, which I didn't really talk about that much. It's one of my most laughable moments, especially when he goes, you're never going to believe this. The truck, it stopped. It just stopped. I love that delivery. It's hilarious. And uh Yeah. All the Detroit stuff, I just, I love watching it. I really do. Uh, my double feature pairing is 1995's Bad Boys with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Um, when I watch this movie, to me, it is the ultimate buddy cop film of the 80s, whereas Bad Boys, in my opinion, is the best buddy cop film of that decade. So you see where I'm getting at? That's why I would like to watch them move together and i have and it's it's great double feature um a fun double feature a star packed double feature um yeah so many reasons why these two go together so that's my double feature pairing for this star power all right guys i'm giving this movie five stars perfection there is 
Nothing I can think of that is aged terribly wrong. Nothing I can think of that I would replace or change or alter. All the characters work. All the actors play their roles solidly. The humor is there. It's perfectly spread throughout. There's the right balance of comedy and action. The plot works. The story keeps you interested for an hour and a half duration. Um, <laughs> what else do I need to tell you guys? Um, it's just that perfect, perfect buddy cop movie. Um, and like I said, my favorite Eddie Murphy movie total overall. Um, yeah, there's just so much going on for it that I love. This movie's just so goddamn good. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much going to be it for this episode. But uh, before I get out of here, just going to remind you, you can listen to previous episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. Check us out on Facebook.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, Instagram.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, YouTube.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, and Twitter.com at Mad Dad Movie Pod. And if you have any questions, comments, or requests, always email them to Mad Dad Movie Review at gmail.com. And real quick, speaking of YouTube, I have, if you've checked out our Facebook page lately, I have been pushing the hell out of our YouTube page. I We've had it for months. We opened it up literally like two or three weeks after we started the podcast. Um, since its inception, it's just been video form of the podcast. Like not us recording. It's literally just I take the audio and I put it to a backdrop and there it is. But starting next week, there will be exclusive brand new video content for the youtube channel so it's going to be more than just episodes there's going to be some vlogs there's going to be some announcement videos there's going to be some video reviews like the one that i've been telling you guys about for the last couple weeks now tenant i'm working on that i've got about 80 percent done so that may or may not be the first move the first video but i do have a couple projects that I'm working on for the YouTube channel, they'll be launching. Like I said, they'll be they'll be dropping in the next week or two. So hang tight. Um, I just want to get the build up. I just want to build up, you know, the audience. And I don't know if you saw my other announcement regarding YouTube and our subscriptions, but uh, right now we're pretty low. We don't push it, and because of that, we're at at this recording, we're at twelve subscribers. When we get to that number 100, then that person, whoever the 100th subscriber is, is going to get a prize. And um, it's going to be good. It's going to be worth. It's not going to be no, you know, cheap crap. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, it's something that I haven't thought what it is yet, but it's going to be special and worth. It's going to be something that, you know, you're going to want to be that 100th subscriber. So, giddy up. Um... Next episode, we'll be back next week with a special, this is different. Now, next week's episode is going to be, again, no Madeline. She'll be back the week after. Um, in fact, I'm, she's, she's going to be back for a special episode that I'm not prepared to announce just yet. We're getting there, though. It's going to be at the end of the month. Um, I think next week I'll announce it, just not yet. But next week's episode is special. It's going to be called... We Keep Odd Hours, the vampire films of the 80s. Now, basically what it is, it started as a writing that I began working on last summer. That I It started as a writing, like I said, but then it turned into a potential video for YouTube. But then I thought, well, I've got these two weeks here on the podcast. Why don't I just turn into a special episode on the show? So that's what I'm going to do next week. Me and a special guest, Miss Elena Tully from the Crazy Train Radio. She is one of the new co-hosts of that podcast. And um, she will be joining me all the way over from Ireland, across the pond. Looking forward to that. Um, Her and I will be talking about overall the vampire films of the 1980s, 
but we will be centering on five particular films. Lost Boys, Vamp, which is, yes, I know, Vamp's a previous episode. We're going to be talking about it again. So Lost Boys, Vamp, Near Dark, The Hunger, and Fright Night. So I'm looking forward to this. In my opinion, the 80s vampire films, in, in my opinion, vampire films in the 80s were everywhere. It was huge. And um, I want to talk about it. So that's what we're going to do. Next week, yours truly, special guest host Elena Tully from Crazy Train Radio. Her and I talking about some vampire films next week. So check it out. That'll drop next Tuesday. And until then, be safe. I know things are tough, but like I keep saying, stay safe, mask up, don't be stupid. And until next time, check you later.